1: Now here's your host, Mike Carlin.
0: Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Lynn Liao Butler. Lynn was born in Taiwan and moved to the States when she was seven. Before becoming an author, she was a professional ballet and modern dancer and is still a personal trainer, fitness instructor, and yoga instructor. She joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about her latest novel, Someone Else's Life. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Lindley Liao Butler. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Um,
2: it uh, not like most people. I, you know, like you said in the bio, I was a professional ballet and modern dancer in New York City, and also a yoga instructor, fitness instructor, and personal trainer. Um, when I moved out of the city in 2013, I just, I just moved to the suburbs and my friends in the city is like, Oh, what are you doing in the country? It's like, I don't live in the country. It's the suburbs. <laughs> so I started a blog to keep them posted of, you know, like my daily life and stories from my life. And they just, one day on, I think it was 2015, I woke up on January 1st and said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. And I'd never taken a writing course. I never taking any writing classes. I just decided I was going to write a book and I wrote a book in six months. Nobody read it. And I started querying it because I didn't know that, you know, you're supposed to have people read it and critique it. And I knew nothing about writing a book and I sent it out. And now I'm just very embarrassed at what I sent out to agents at that point. Well, you know,
0: we all we all make those mistakes first time out (laughs) of the gate. I mean, there are things I sent out to agents that that shouldn't have been sent to anybody, even people who knew me and would have lied (laughs) to tell me it was good. You know, so.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like I cringe now to think that and actually five agents requested it. And I'm just like cringing now to think of it was all telling. There was no story, no plot. It was just kind of a bunch of stories thrown together. So, yeah. So it was pretty so, bad.
0: So, what did you learn coming out from that first experience?
2: Um, so, after that, I, so I, I you know, I was like, why am I, why am I not getting any requests? So, I started to Google. Like, thank goodness for the internet now, because you know you can just look up anything. And I started googling how to query agents and you know how to write a query letter. I realized you know I was doing everything wrong. So, I joined two critique groups um, and finally had people actually read the book. Um, and read pieces of it. I found my critique partner actually on Twitter. Um, she lives in Germany. We connected. I joined like the um, some writing groups, uh, and basically I just did everything that I should have done before I actually sent out a query, which is find a writing community, find some critique partners, beta readers, learn as much about the craft as possible. I still have never taken a writing course, but I did take my favorite books and dissected them. Like I basically like broke them down. See, okay, where was the Um, climax? Where was the hook? Where did she start leaving clues? You know, at what point in the book do you drop the first hint? And so I dissected these books and that's basically how I learned how to write a book.
0: I mean, that's probably the best way to learn how to write a book. You know, it's it's almost like learning how to do comedy. Um, You don't you don't learn by taking a class in stand up comedy. You learn by watching other performers and then, you know, getting the nerve up and and seeing what works and what doesn't work when you're on stage. Um, Yeah. So tell me, uh, tell me about this book. Tell me about Someone Else's Life. What what can you share with us about it?
2: So Someone Else's Life started off, my first two books are what they call upmarket fiction, which is like, you know, book club fiction, women's fiction. Um, and the third book was supposed to be in that same vein. It was supposed to be like family, about families and stuff like that. And I wrote it during the pandemic, 2021. We had come to, I'm actually in Kauai right now, as we speak, we had come to Kauai in 2021 during the pandemic, because we're like, if we're going to have to shelter in place, let's just do it in paradise. So it was like the best decision we made. Like I just on a whim said to my husband, I want to set this book in Kauai. We need to go and do research. There's no COVID on Kauai. They weren't letting people in. So let's go. (laughs) And we were lucky because three days before we left, they lifted the 14 day quarantine that you had to be in a hotel room for. And we were able to stay in a resort bubble with our, he was eight years old at a time with our son. And um, we tested out after three days and then we just lived in paradise. And I wrote this book, but I w- I was doing pandemic homeschooling and it was the worst thing I have ever done in my life. And my, like after like five weeks, my eight year old said to me like, mommy, I retire from your school. He didn't quit, he, retired. <laughs> he, retired. he was eight years old, he retired. I was like, you're, you're eight, you can't retire. And like, you, like seriously, like by 1026, every morning I needed a drink and I'm not a day drinker. So <laughs> that, just, that just tells you how bad it was. So I was in a really bad, you know, state of mind, the pandemic, whatever. And I started killing people in the book. Um, it was supposed to be about a woman who lost everything and she moves to Hawaii to start over and, you know, she discovers herself and whatever. But I started killing people and then there was a stalker and then there was accidental murder and then intentional murder and... Then all of a sudden my agent was like, Lynn, this is not upmarket family, you know, novel. This is like a thriller. You're killing people. And I was like, oh, you're right. I think I wrote a thriller. So that's why I call it my accidental thriller. And it just was even more better that it was took place in Kauai in the middle of a storm because you have this beautiful, you know, background and then all this sinister stuff, stuff starts, things starts to happen. And so we pulled it, I mean, we made it into a thriller and my agent sold it on three chapters and a synopsis in two weeks. Wow. And I suddenly had to learn how to write a thriller in six weeks because they wanted it in six weeks.
0: Oh my goodness.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had written the whole book as upmarket, you know, like a, a Amy Tand type of book. And then I had to tear it apart and figure out how to turn it into a thriller in six weeks. And yeah.
0: Were you or your agent nervous at all about switching genres like that kind of, you know, you you, you being known for something and then throwing, you know, your your readers a curveball?
2: Yeah. So at the point when it turned into a thriller, my debut hadn't even come out yet. And, my, and so I had a two book deal at Berkeley for my first two books. And she's like, you're they're marketing you as an upmarket book club fiction. And you're you can't suddenly switch to thriller without, you know, without your debut even coming out. But then she read it. She was like, you know what, this is a thriller. So we will just go out as a thriller. She didn't ask me to change my, you know, do a pen name because she said as a woman of color, it's so hard for us to get our name out there anyways, that it would be diluting our brand. So she went out. My new editor was completely fine with me keeping it because I guess it was close enough because in my books, there is some sort of thriller elements, even though it's like upmarket fiction. Um, so they thought it was close enough, but then I wrote a rom-com and that's when my agent's like, okay, (laughs) now you need a pen name.
0: (laughs) So, So I mean, do you have a rom-com coming out under a pen name?
2: I do. So in June, on June 6th, I have a rom-com called crazy value coming out. Which I'm writing under just Lin Liao, which is my maiden name. So yeah. we took out the butler and just so I'm like John Cougar Mellencamp. I'm like Lin Liao, Lin <laughs> Liao Butler, Lynn Butler. <laughs> so maybe I'll write a fantasy under Lynn Butler or something, you know.
0: <laughs> Lynn Cougar Butler.
2: Yeah, Lynn Cougar Butler. There we go. <laughs> there
0: you go. Just borrow from uh John Mellencamp. Exactly. The pride of Indiana. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um well tell me, so so um kind of big life changes, right? So you you kind of leave the city. You leave your career. Now you're working as sort of a, a, an author. Um, And although I I know you still, you know, do some, um, you know, training and, and, and yoga and all that, but what, what, how has your life changed since, since making these big moves?
2: Um, Well, so I am basically writing almost full time. Um, I used to be a business owner too. I actually opened a gym and fitness studio in Manhattan for 10 years wow dancing don't ask me how i did it it was the worst decision i've ever made in my life um because i was running this big business by myself in the city so i was working like 24 hours a day i was doing payroll at 2 in the morning you know dancing rehearsing in the day running this gym i had 35 employees um so my life was just one big stressful hell um and so a lot of someone else's life is based on that experience because in the book a woman who you know, was really busy, had a dance studio. Um, She loses everything. And, you know, then she becomes depressed and starts, and then they decide to move to Kauai to start over. We didn't quite do that, but um, it was based on that time. So now I am so much more relaxed. I'm living my best life. I mean, look at me, I'm here in Kauai doing book work. Um, I write mostly full-time. I still do teach um, like six to seven yoga fitness classes a week. Um, I have an Etsy shop that I sew for at night. And so it's a really good balance of, you know, when I get writer's block, sorry, there's an ambulance out here. If I start to get writer's block, I just, I stop writing immediately and I go and I either torture people in a fitness class or I own everybody in a yoga class. And then like my creative well is full again and I come back. So I never write unless I know I have something to write, which is why I never have writer's block. I just go do something else. And the sewing is like meditation to me. So it's like, once I've had enough of people at night, you know, I sew and then we have three dogs, um, which we actually fostered 18 dogs during the pandemic. So it was (laughs) quite, it was quite, and we only foster failed twice. So we had one dog before. So now we have three dogs. Um, We almost end up with four, but I put my foot down and said to my uh, child, I was like, we cannot have a fourth dog. So yeah, so I'm living my best life right now, I have to say.
0: I I, do, I will observe you, you. You are someone who likes to have a lot of irons in the fire, it seems.
2: Yes. Yes. <laughs> I am a multitasker. And if I'm not doing five things at one time, I feel like something's missing. So, yeah.
0: Well, I know there are a few things important to you in your books. One of them is bringing Taiwanese-American characters into your books. Tell me a little bit about that.
2: Yeah. So I was born in Taiwan. Um, so as a Taiwanese-American, I a lot of people don't even know what Taiwan is. Like I've said to people, oh, I was born in Taiwan. They're like, oh, I love Thai food. And I'm like, no, no, that's Thailand. I was born in Taiwan, completely different country and they still don't get it. Like this just happened to me the other day and they were asking me like, oh, what's your favorite Thai food? I'm like, well, I love Thai food, but Um, so I feel like it's really important now especially with all the different representation that's coming out, that people know a little bit more about what Taiwan is and that Taiwan and China are not necessarily synonymous depending on who you speak with. Um, So I'm trying to bring that Taiwanese American perspective into novels Um, hopefully, and there are starting to become more authors out there who are Taiwanese American, and I love connecting with them, um, because, you know, a lot of people don't realize what it is, so as a thriller book, there's not very many thrillers out there from Asian perspectives, let alone Taiwanese Americans, so I, I, a lot of the reviews I got, is like, it's was really interesting to see this point of view from, you know, a different culture, so, I think it's important to bring it into all genres.
0: Yeah. And you, you mentioned, you know, food, um, yes. in your example, but it's also important for you to bring food in your books as well. Uh, tell me why.
2: Yeah, because in Taiwan f- food means everything. Like all Taiwanese people do is eat. There are night markets, day markets, like you're always eating. And it's like the best food you'll ever had. And it's not, no, they don't have a lot of Taiwanese food in the States. Um, there used to be some in Flushing, New York. There was a Taiwanese like community there, but they all moved out. But it is so good. And in Taiwan, you can't think about Taiwan without thinking about food. So unknowingly, my first book, the, uh, the Tiger Mom's Tale, I didn't even know that I wrote about food until all the reviews started coming back. And people were like, I'm so hungry. I want to try this food. I need to go to Taiwan now. And they all thought I did it on purpose. I was like, no, because in Taiwanese culture, food is synonymous with family getting together um everything you do is about food my my husband is irish irish american and we i took him there in 20 i think it was 2017 to research for that debut book and after like a week he goes is this all we're gonna do is just eat are we gonna go sightseeing i'm like no no sightseeing we're just gonna eat our way through taiwan he's like no temples you know (laughs) those (laughs) monuments i was like no we're just gonna eat and he's like, "How do you guys stay so skinny?" Like he's like, "You eat like three times the amount I do." I'm like, "I don't know. <laughs> we just eat." So yeah, so food is very important.
0: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's very sub, like it's so subconscious, right? If you don't even know that you're yeah. writing, you're putting all this food in there, it's um, it's just part of you. It's part of you and and the culture.
2: Yes, exactly, and it's actually an insult if you go into a Chinese household and you don't eat the food they give you. Oh. They take it very personally. So they, my mom, like when he she first met. My husband was like plying him with food, and he's like, "I can't eat anymore." And she was getting insulted, She's like, "Oh, it's not, not good." And I was like, "And he's like, I'm so full." <laughs> so yeah.
0: So if I were That's to all- walk into your mom's house, what what yeah. is an example of a dish that she would try to serve me?
2: Well, so my dad is the the chef in the family. They both are very good cooks, but my dad loves to cook. Um, he would make you like man which is. Beef noodle soup. Um, it's a staple of Taiwanese food it is so good. And like this rich broth with, you know, homemade hand-pulled noodles and vegetables. Um, so that would be one thing. Um, he loves to make his fried rice, which is completely different from the fried rice that you get in, in America. Mm-hmm. And my mom makes these most amazing dumplings and wontons and, you know, all from hand. Um, I think I even did a video of how to make a wonton from scratch for my fir- my second book or something. But yeah, they'll give you all this like, and then there's like something called um, roken or um, baki, which is my favorite. It's a thick soup. Um, and I mean, there's so many different like oyster pancakes and like stinky tofu. They don't make stinky tofu, but you get that in the um, night markets, which is really stinky, but it's really good. <laughs> so, and well, you'll make a whole bunch of things that you don't even know what it is. And you're like, and he would be, just be like, just eat it.
0: They probably don't want to know what's in there.
2: No, you don't want to know. It's all its all really good.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, one of the ways I like to get to know my guests a little bit more is, is through pop culture. So Lynn, I'm curious, when you were growing up, what were some of your favorite things to watch on TV? If you had any favorite things to watch on TV?
2: Well, so I grew up, I guess I came to the States in I think the 80s. So the first things we knew was, you know, like Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers, like huge Mr. Rogers fan. And then we, you know, there was like we weren't allowed to watch Three's Company because it was racy, you know. But oh. my parents watched; they they watched it at night while we were sleeping. But my sister and I would sneak it. Um, but it's like Little House on the Prairie. I wanted to be Nellie Olsen because back then, you know, I looked different, and I went to an all white, basically all white school, and I was like, I want, you, you know, curly blonde hair like Nellie Olson and Little House on the Prairie. The Brady Bunch. I wanted to be one of the Brady Bunch kids. You know, they're all blonde. And this is why I I think that representation matters because at that time, every ideal what girl that I saw was blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, saved by the Bell, um, although Tiffany in that move uh, in that. That's right.
0: That Kelly Kapowski was not blonde. Yes, hair.
2: she was. She was brunette. So that was the first brunette I saw. That was, and then I wanted to be her. Um, you know, saved by the bell. So it was all those, I mean, we watched a lot of TV because we were learning how to speak English. Yeah. And my parents were like, that's the best way. Just throw you in front of TV and you kind of absorb it. So it, it is true. Like we learned a lot of English from watching TV shows and sitcoms like that um, growing pains. What's the one with, um with John Stamos? Full no, house. Full, house, full, house, full house. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So I, I was an eighties, nineties child.
0: I, I think it's so funny because I, I remember Three's Company in the original run. Right. Um, I just think it's so funny how that is considered like or was considered racy television at the time.
2: Right. Because right. um, <laughs>
0: looking at it now, it's like, oh, my gosh, this is nothing compared to, you know, what.
2: It's so team, right? <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. I mean, what he's, he's got two roommates who are right. women and he's got to pretend to be gay. Like, right. it's just it, it's it was a premise. Like, yeah, it was silly, but it's a premise that wouldn't make sense. In today's day and age. Right, right, exactly. Um, but funny, unless I was talking to somebody recently and we were talking about, you know, where would we like to go hang out for, like if we if we could pick out all the different fictional bars that we've seen in TV and movies, like where would we like to hang out? The Regal Beagle was at the top of my list. <laughs> I would totally hang out at the yes, Regal Beagle. Yes, I would Beagle.
2: too. Yes, yes. Very racy, you know? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. Uh, how about music? What did you grow up listening to?
2: Um we did so our parent my parents were you know obviously Taiwanese so they didn't know anything about music. So I grew up just from my friends uh listening. Um and we had used to have this tape and I pulled it out the other day. I can't remember half the old songs like um uh give me some 80s music because I can't
0: remember oh right like now. 80s pop music or
2: yeah, like 80s, I mean, uh, like um... you know those ballads, like um those oh. really like um dramatic, like, like, I can't remember, like, a, lo- a heart or something. Is that her oh, name? Oh, a little heart.
0: Sure, and, heart. And then, uh, the, yeah, the, the, the Wilson is, sisters, yes. Yeah, the
2: Wilson. And then the one from um that movie, Mannequin, there was, like, a song in there. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what is that's going to drive me nuts. I can hear the keyboards yeah, playing in, in exactly. the background. The
2: dramatic and the, you know, that's that. So it was all kind of Latin, like Don, was it Don McLean? McLean? Don
0: McLean, American Pie?
2: American Pie. That was our prom song for some reason
0: that's an interesting choice for a prom song <laughs> that
2: was our senior year prom song i think um and uh yeah so like like stuff like that it was more it wasn't rock it was more like the ballads like yeah. you know those things that tend to make you cry which i cannot for the life of me remember the name of but i still remember that our tape, that mix that we
0: made well, I, I I cheated and the song from Mannequin was Starship's uh, Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now. That's
2: it. Starships. So stuff like that. Like cheesy stuff like that. That that was that was what I grew up listening to.
0: Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, since you've since you've started um writing and now you're a full-time, you're writing pretty much full-time. Tell me what um what big lessons have you learned about yourself as you've invested more time in writing?
2: Well, so I thought I had a very thick skin because as a ballet dancer, you know, I would go to cattle, they call them cattle calls. I don't know if they do anymore. But that when I was dancing, it's just like hundreds of girls vying for like one or two spots. And they literally go through and say, you're too fat, you're too tall, you're too short, you're too Asian, and just weed you out like that. And, you know, they'd, they'd be like, you know, great dancing, you can't sing out. And it was just like, and then like, we all the directors, for some reason, they were all male. And they were all like, yelling in your face like you're too fat you need to eat like a third of what's left on your plate you are not allowed to drink juice um I would just remember one time this director marching around going like this saying you all look like big fat white elephants move to the back like go upstage like he didn't want us to come downstage and we're all like well why'd you put us in a white costume if you think so it was like a lot of that kind of stuff so I thought I had a very thick skin so when I became an author I started reading my reviews even though everybody told me not to and at first they made me laugh because Some people were cruel. They like write paragraphs and novels about how much they hated your book, which I took as a compliment effort, because I'm like, if I made somebody feel that much, even if it's negative, it obviously impacted them enough that they wrote an entire book. And then they, some of them just got really cruel. Like they, you know, say things that they would never say to someone to their face And then I finally decided, you know what? Maybe I should stop reading these reviews because then they start to mess with the head and like, okay, you know, they say I suck. I'm not a writer. I should go back to, you know, find another job. So that was one thing that I finally stopped doing. Like I'll skim the Amazon page just to see how the ratings are going. And I see the bad reviews, but I try to scroll through them, even though sometimes you can't help it and, you know, it jumps out at you. But all you can do is laugh about it because I know not everybody loves your book, but I bet you... 99% of those people would never say what they wrote in a review to my face.
0: Oh, no, it's the comfort of the keyboard, you know, it's the the keyboard warriors. They're the same people who flame other people on Twitter. Right.
2: Exactly. And a lot of it is probably um, frustrated writers who are not getting anywhere and they see a book that they hated, being sold and, you know, published in bestsellers list. So they need to tear it down because they're like, why is that book out there? And I can't get my work out there. Right. So I get it. So that's why I'm like, you know what? They're, they're more than welcome to the opinions, but I will stay away from this from now on.
0: Yeah. It's probably better for your, uh, <laughs> so
2: I don't, I don't read reviews anymore, good or bad. I just, uh, especially with someone else's life, cause it was, a uh, Amazon's first reads, which is when you get it for free, if you're a prime member and with the thousands of ratings out there, a lot of people felt the need to say, you know, how bad it was because it was a free book. So I stay away now.
0: (laughs) Stay away. It's better for your mental health. Exactly. Um, and if you could go back in time and whisper some words into advice uh, of advice into the, you know, the longer, younger Lynn's, um, ears, what would you tell your younger self?
2: You mean about writing?
0: About anything, about life in general, you know, oh. thinking about all all that you've learned, um, you know, about yourself now, what would you tell your younger self?
2: I would say if you believe in something and you truly, truly enjoy something, don't give up. Or at least not that don't give up because sometimes you do have to. But if you're gonna give up or if you're really love something and it's not getting where you Give it all you got. Like if you're gonna fail, fail spectacularly. Like I always say this to people because I did that. I it took me three and a half years and three manuscripts to sign with an agent. And by the time I wrote that third book, I was like done. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I'm not making any money. I'm wasting all this time and energy. And I said, you know what? I'm gonna go out with a bang. So I entered every single contest I could think of, like pitch wars, Rev Pit. I entered Pit Mad, you know, DV Pit, whatever it's called. I, um, a lot of these agents were giving away free query critiques, you know, with things. So I entered all that. I got critique partners. I had so many people read it. And then I researched the hell out of the agents to narrow down, like which ones I wanted. So I basically said, if I'm going to fail, I'm going to go out in a blaze of glory. And then that way I can look back and not regret not having tried. Like I did everything I could, I couldn't get there. So that meant my path was something else. So yeah, because I've wasted a lot of time in the past, like afraid to try something or to go for something because it didn't work. And if I hadn't done that last push of plate, you know, to fail spectacularly, I wouldn't have signed with my agent. I would have quit too early and then probably regretted it later on.
0: Yeah, the, the blaze of glory, of course, another great <laughs> Bon Jovi song. But... Yeah, there
2: we go. Oh yeah, Bon Jovi is another big one we listen to. It. <laughs> but
0: but there is this. I mean, your your you know your work will will get you an agent, but also your passion will will help you find an agent as well. Like if, if you're going out, you know, full steam, 180%, um, that's going to be noticed as well. Just as maybe just as much as you're writing um, the, the the, it's showing that you, you believe in yourself enough to just go give it all you got, which is exactly what I'm going to entitle the name of this episode.
2: (laughs) Yes. Because a lot of people get intimidated or they get discouraged and then they start to doubt themselves and you know, they, then when you're doubting yourself, you're sending out to the universe and that's what you're going to get back. So so yeah, that's my best piece of advice to myself. It's just, you know what? Go for it because life is short. If it doesn't work out, then that path, which was not meant for you, maybe there's another path. Um, do you ha- do I have time to tell you a quick little story? Absolutely. About- sure. So I wrote this rom-com which um, after the thriller. So now I'm in writing two different genres and my agent tried to sell it last year and she couldn't it went it got close like it went to acquisitions Um, people were interested but they kept saying it wasn't it wasn't um different enough to break out so it died on sub Uh, that's what we call it it died and so we had a long talk in december and she's like i can either send it to smaller publishers or you can sell public or just let it die and I love that book so much. I said, you know what? I'm going to self-publish this book. And I never in a million years thought I would do that. Like I've always said, I will never self-publish because I don't know how. I decided to do it. I looked into it. I got everything fell in place. I self-pubbed it. Um, it's on pre-order right now. And then my agent goes, she still believed in it. She's like, do you want me to try to sell the audio for and, and sub-rights? I was like, sure. But it, she said, don't expect anything because it's a self pub book and they don't usually within two days of going on sub for audio, she had two offers. And then a third one came in the next day, and then two more houses wanted it. And then suddenly, there was this huge bidding war going on. And I'm like, my mind was like, absolutely blown, because I'm like, I thought this book died. And now suddenly, there's this bidding war, and it went to auction. And it was a really brutal auction, it just kept going up and going up, people were putting in bids, Um, two had to drop out because it went too high. And it was just like this crazy thing. And then finally, we took the highest offer, which was three times the amount of the first offer. And I just like, my mind was blown because I believed in this book and I thought it died. But now it's going to be an audiobook as well as a paperback and a Kindle. And she's going to try to sell the form, right? So it's like, you know what? I believed in it and I put it out there. I never thought I was sell pub, but now it's going to be a book.
0: Well, you were putting, you know, I think it's a situation where you're you're putting, I don't want to say your money where your mouth is, but you believed in it enough to put it out there. Right. Um, and I think people pick up on that. They're like, wow. They're, yeah." It, it's
2: not the traditional way to sell a book, but you know what? I've made money on it already. So it covered all the self publishing costs and now it is going to be an audiobook and get picked up. And, you know, so, so you never know, like if you believe in it, go for it.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. It might be different.
2: It might be a different path than what you thought, but you know, something will happen.
0: Well, I also think that, you know, the, the term traditional publishing has got to change because it's the publishing market has been, I mean, it, the industry rather it's, it's, it's been so challenged by self-publishing hybrid right. publishers. Um, you know, it's, it's, I I imagine the next five years or so, we're going to see even more disruption and in, um, yes, in, in publishing. So
2: definitely. So now I've been published by a big five with an Amazon and now I'm going to self-publish and now I have this audio deal. So it's it's definitely changing like I never imagined I would do this.
0: Yeah. Well here you are and uh someone else's life. Tell me where can uh, everybody go out and pick up someone else's life.
2: You can get it anywhere where you can pick up books online, Amazon, I think it's on all the retailers like Barnes & Noble, Target. Um most I think most uh physical pot copies are mostly in independent bookstores like um not Barnes & Noble cuz they're Amazon's competitor. Um, but it is on Barnes & Noble's and Target's um, websites, which is, I find interesting. So basically anywhere where you can pick up a book.
0: All right. And then if people want to connect with you, Lynn, and, and learn more about you, do you have a website and social media handles you want to yeah, share? With so everybody? I
2: made it, I made it very easy for everybody to find me. So all my social media website, everything, the handle is just lynnlealbutler.com or or Lynn linlealbutler is um, just the handle. So
0: Well, there we go. I'll be sure to put all of that into our show notes. Uh, Lynn, thank you so much for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.